You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Terry Cavanaugh, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and this is an interview with Terry Kavanaugh. This is a companion episode to our Excalibur series of episodes, and I talked to Terry because he was one of the ones who helped launch the title back in the 80s and was the editor and oversaw production of the, of the book through to over 50 issues. So he's got, a, he's got a lot of stories to tell, and there's a lot of fun stuff, behind-the-scenes stuff. There's a um, great insight into some of the creators like Eric Larson and Scott Lobdell, who were starting out at this time. Really interesting information about Chris Claremont and Alan Davis as they were creating together and, and separately at times. So yeah, you will want to listen to this, and then if you haven't already, check out my Excalibur episode. Excalibur episode one, The Sword is Drawn to hear uh, some more talk about about that comic series. And just before we go into the interview, I want to quickly plug my social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can search Epic Marvel Podcast on all of those and be a part of uh, the Epic Marvel Podcast conversation. If you love the Epic Collections that Marvel has been putting out, you can join my Facebook group. Just search for Epic Collections on Facebook and you'll find us there. And we do a lot of talking about about Epic Collections and the content found within. You can also donate a couple of bucks on our Patreon site to help keep this podcast afloat. You can go to patreon.com slash thunderquack because we are part of the Thunderquack Podcast Network. So sit back. Put up your feet, grab some popcorn, and enjoy this interview with Terry Kavanaugh. From your end, the editorial perspective, how did Excalibur all come to be, and what was it like um, editing these these early issues? Uh, and I know you came in as an assistant editor for the first Excalibur special edition. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. What was your role as an assistant editor for that story? All right. Let me let me just preface this as saying everything was a long, long time ago. Right. So uh, of course. I'll, I'll, I'll give you my answers to the best of my ability. So I was Ann Nascenti's assistant editor, and she was the editor of the X-Men line of books. And Chris Claremont and Alan Davis had worked together on, I don't think they were in regular issues, I think they were specials of the X-Men, either annuals or something like that. They both really enjoyed working together very much. Um, We obviously loved the end result. So out of that was born the idea to do Excalibur with the two of them together. And Anne was the editor. Uh, We did that special edition first, which I think was a prestige format, if I remember correctly. That's right. My role as assistant would have been 
just that really assistant Anne was the editor she made the story decisions uh i certainly read plots and looked at scripts and and art and gave her my two cents on it and she followed my suggestions when she agreed with them or not i worked closely with chris and alan mainly on the trafficking elements of that I would speak to both of them on a regular basis. I would see Chris when he would come into the office. Alan lived in England, so that was not the case. We never really saw him in person. And then left staff. We were already, I believe, working up the first issue of the regular series at that point. Not sure how far into production we were on that. She left staff. The editor-in-chief, who was Tom DeFalco at the time, I was promoted and he gave me Excalibur, but the other X-Men books were handed over to uh, Bob Harris, who had more seniority. So I was there really from the beginning of the creation of Excalibur, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a key player. I was an assistant editor, like I said, with the special edition and maybe the development of the series itself. However, once we got into it, I really enjoyed the different character of that book as opposed to the other X-Men titles. The fact that there was, uh, uh, it was a, a little more lighthearted and it had a little, more, um, little less angst, a little more fun. Certainly still plenty of comic book soap opera, but the focus was a little different. And I really enjoyed that. Um, that came from both Chris and Alan. I'm sure Alan encouraged Chris towards that. And that was not something that Chris had really done a lot of, writing more humorous uh, comic books. So I think a lot of the ideas for that came from Alan. Alan would make suggestions about what the next storyline could be or the, the next characters to introduce or to return to. And I, as, as an editor, my approach was always, there were two different kinds of editors in my day. There were the editors that really had strong ideas about what they wanted to do with each title, and they hired people to write and draw their vision. I took a sort of different approach. I knew what I wanted in general for a title, but then I hired talent that I thought was best suited to execute on what my high concept was, and then my job just became really shepherding their work. Actually, I always looked at it as I was shepherding the characters and I was basically a butler to the creators to make their <laughs> job easier to not interfere with their creation process. Right. Wow. So you mentioned that Davis gave a lot of uh, of his own input and suggestions as to kind of story ideas and that kind of thing. And I noticed that a lot of the story elements carry over from the Marvel UK books that Alan probably was quite involved with. North American audiences wouldn't have known the Marvel UK stuff very well at all. So was there a little bit of, um, I don't know, conversation about whether or not you should fully embrace all of the stuff that had been going on in the Captain Britain comics in the UK? Not from my end, because interestingly enough, as a kid, I have a lot of family in Ireland and I would go to Ireland every summer for about 10 years as a kid. And I was buying those Marvel UK books and reading those. I fondly remember those Captain Britain stories that Alan was an integral part of. In fact, it's what led to later on. And I, I love the idea of them returning to those. Chris certainly was an Anglophile. 
and appreciated that and really appreciated Alan's work as well. And Alan appreciated Chris's work. So I'm sure Chris welcomed returning to some of those characters and storylines. And what it led to for me uh, that was interesting was eventually Chris had to leave Excalibur. It was his choice. Uh, certainly, it's. He, I think he was doing great work. I had no issue with it, and would ne- I was hoping he would never leave. But it was his choice, and I think another X Men book had been launched around that time, and maybe he needed to focus on the two core X Men titles more. That would have been Wolverine. Wolverine's ongoing. That may, well, in Marvel Comics Presents as well. Right. He, he wrote that first series, and I was the editor of Marvel Comics Presents, so that was a whole other bowl of wax. Um, <laughs> uh, that was fun and almost killed me but i'm off topic so what ended up happening was when chris left the title alan had already left the title he was working on some other projects i can't quite remember what at this point and uh, i had become very close with alan at that point i think we i well i'd gone to a convention in england and had actually met him in person and and uh we've become very fast friends and we were by that point so he had to leave the title for a while. We had a couple of other artists come in. Eventually, Chris had to leave the title, and I called up Alan and asked Alan if he wanted to come on to the book. And he said to me, well, I appreciate that. I'd love to work with you again, Terry, but I'm not really interested in drawing other people's work right now. I'm, I'm interested in maybe writing my own stuff. I said, well, and he didn't realize that's why I was calling him. So no, Alan, that's what I'm, I'm calling you to ask you if you want to write and draw Excalibur. Oh, nice. And he, he was a little taken aback at first. He said, well, why, why would you do that? How do you know I could even write? And I said, because I, I read the stuff you wrote for Marvel UK when I was younger, and I loved that stuff. And I knew that was the source material for a lot of the storylines you'd done. It was strange to me that in Alan's and my many, 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 many hours of conversation over the years, I had never mentioned that to him. So he was a little stunned as far as he knew I was calling and offering to let him write the book without me knowing he had any writing experience. So I said, no, I wouldn't do that, Alan. (laughs) You know, I respect your writing work immensely, and that's what I want to see in this book. So... He jumped at that chance and came on board, and the rest was history. Yeah, wow. Was the decision uh, to create an ongoing series um, always in, in the books? Because uh, the funny thing that about the, the very first issue cover is it says, uh, because you demanded it, Excalibur in their own monthly series, which makes it seem like there was a chance that there wasn't going to be an, an Excalibur ongoing series. Well, I, I I don't think it was meant that way. That because you demanded it, it's just a tongue in cheek thing. It was a tongue in cheek thing, and it was something that was used often to say, you know, we got such a great response to what we've done with Excalibur so far. You've demanded we give it a, its own series, and here we go meeting your demands. <laughs> yeah, right. It was it was it was part of Marvel's way of interacting with the audience. Those kind of blurbs and statements. Yeah, we yeah. like think we were a little more interactive with the audience than our distinguished competition. It's great. It it uh, it is certainly a good marketing play as well. <laughs> yes. The cross time caper is <laughs> well, is a fantastic story. Like it's it's just a lot of fun and it's long. And for comics of this era, that's sort of unusual. Was that something that Chris and and uh, Alan brought to you? Say, can we do a really long story? 
Well, no, I don't think they pitched it that way because that wouldn't have been a very wise way to pitch it. <laughs> I, I, I would have put up some defenses about that. And I also answered to the editor-in-chief and the editor-in-chief answered to the publisher and everybody along the way answered to each other when it came to the marketing people and the salespeople. Yeah. They answered to us and we answered to them. It was a it went back and forth that way. So I do remember a particular uh, conversation with the editor in chief about that. So the first issue, I don't think we ever planned for it to be uh, 13 chapters or whatever it was. We were just having so much fun with it that we kept it going. Okay. Uh, and the very first issue, we did say part one of the cross time caper. I think that was a banner above the logo. And for the cover of the second issue, I just put cross time caper up there. And I didn't say part two. I didn't say part three with the third. And Tom DeFalco, who was the editor in chief, came to me at that point and said, well, you need to make this say part two of the cross time caper. And I remember saying to Tom, I, I don't what what is the what's the upside of saying that we're really just announcing to the world that they already missed a chapter when in fact Chris and Alan are professional enough to be able to tell a story where each issue they bring the reader up to speed mm -hmm, so right. all we'd really be doing is turning some readers off by saying number two in the cross time caper I do want people to know this is a longer story arc called the cross time capers so I have that there and I had number one because it's a great jumping off on point but to put number two, to put number three, to put number four is really just going to be an excuse for some readers to drop off and, and, and not pick up the title. And Tom, to his credit, you know, heard my position on this and said, yeah, you're right. That makes sense. Fine. Just as long as you keep saying it's part of a longer storyline that the cross time caper, we can go with that. Nice. <laughs> and I don't think, honestly, by the second chapter or the third chapter, we had any idea how long it was going to go. If necessary, like if Tom had said to me, you need to say this is part two of eight, you know, I would have sat Chris down and gotten Alan on the phone and we would have hashed out a longer story arc. But there were certain writers I knew I didn't have to do that with uh, because I, I trusted that they knew how to tell a story. They knew when to start wrapping it up when we were getting ready to lose our readers, these were very experienced creators that I, I did not need to hold their hands and walk them through these things. And in fact, I, I'm perfectly willing to admit this, they had far more experience at comic books than I did at that point. And I always found it strange that uh, I had never written a word yet or drawn a page Yet I was editing an experienced writer and an experienced artist. I mm. had certainly apprenticed under Ann Nascenti, who was a great editor. Uh, we were under Jim Shooter at first as editor-in-chief, and he had a lot to teach all of us. And I and all my colleagues, everybody we worked with were very creative and, and knew the medium very well. I'd been a comic book fan my entire life, so I knew how to approach it from a reader's perspective but that's why i chose my particular approach to editing which is just hire people whose work i respect and then make it possible for them to make the best possible product i did not want to have to tell chris claremont or alan davis or john byrne or any of the people i was working with how to do their job i wanted to hire people who knew how to do their job and then help them do it right 
So I see you you bring in people like Marshall Rogers and Ron Lim and stuff to to help out with some fill-in issues and such like that. Um, yep. Those are those are some of those people who also you can just say do your thing. Absolutely, absolutely. That was my approach to editing all along. It, that said, and this is again a little aside, on Marvel Comics Presents, I did have the freedom since there were four eight-page stories every two weeks. I had the freedom to give work to a lot of beginners. And I knew I also had the time that I could put into if I hired someone who'd never, you know, based on their portfolio at a convention, uh, I knew this is going to take a little more work with these people. I could slot it as an inventory story and ask the penciler if it was a new penciler to go back and redo the storytelling in some cases or to, you know, pull in for the emotional moments or to pull back for the action scenes i knew i could help them learn their craft on a book like that i wasn't about to do that on a book like excalibur which was a high profile title yeah. and i you know i i didn't have the time on a monthly title honestly to train someone whereas on marvel comics presents with these eight page backup stories i could take as much time as possible to help train people and it was that was great fun for me i felt like i was really contributing to the industry and a lot of people got some of their first work in Marvel Comics Presents because of that. Well, and speaking of that, the Excalibur story that ran in Marvel Comics Presents is from Eric Larson, and that's some of his first work for Marvel, right? Yes, and yes. So that was one of the, this is one of the examples of taking one of these people and helping train them? Yep, yep. Although Eric did not need a lot of training, Eric was very, very good at what he did. Uh, the writer, I believe, was Michael Higgins, right. who was an experienced editor and had done plenty of writing as well. We took intentionally a different approach to that storyline using these sort of cartoon character stuff because I thought Eric's style lent itself to that. You know, Eric is, is big and action-packed and dynamic. And uh, again, I wanted to keep that lighthearted sense to Excalibur when we were doing a storyline with them. And so the story reflected that, the art reflected that, and Eric was very appreciative of being able to do that, and then consequently, I believe, wrote and drew a three-part story for me later on in Marvel Comics Presents, and then he was who I turned to for the 50th issue where I wanted every character who'd appeared in the previous 200 stories right. uh, to appear on the cover, and he owed me one at that point, so he <laughs> happily did that. Well, that's good. Yeah, that was a great cover. <laughs> yeah. So when when a creator like like Claremont and Davis, when creators have something that they've created like Excalibur, but then you want to use those characters, like let's say Marvel Comics Presents, do you go to them and say, hey, do you mind if we use these guys over there? Or is it like kind of this understanding that these are just Marvel-owned characters? Because Michael Higgins was the one who wrote the Marvel Comics Presents story. And I just, yes. Is, is there any sort of conversations like well we don't want to step on their toes kind of thing well out of respect yes but all the creators for marvel knew that basically what they were doing was work for hire yeah and these characters were owned by marvel and really who you had to get permission from company policy was every wolverine story i did i had to get approval from bob harris who was the editor of the x-men so Basically, Wolverine was part of his stable of characters. So for me, doing an Excalibur story in there meant a little less work because I only had to get my own approval for right. it. <laughs> True. Uh, I didn't have to take it to a third party for approval. But certainly, 
if Chris and Alan had been available to do that, they would have been my first choice. You know, any time I was using a character that appeared in other titles, the original creators or the current creators would have been the first people I would have turned to. And out of respect, one way or the other, I would have let them know this was going on. And I, I don't really recall any creator ever coming to me and saying, no, I don't want you to use, you know, Rachel Summers in this storyline. They might come to me and say, and this is a this is a might have, this didn't happen, but yeah. they might come to me and say, well, great, do your Excalibur story, but can you keep Rachel Summers out of it because I have this big thing planned for her in the X-Men during that time period right in the X-Men title and we don't want to you know we don't want to cross continuity problems going on there that could have happened and again I would have always respected that because I didn't want the fans to be seeing one version of Rachel Summers in one book and another version in another book and being confused by that part of the fun of Marvel was that it was a cohesive universe and so speaking of the cohesive universe, the X-Men were presumed dead at this time, and and Excalibur doesn't meet back up with them until um, issue 41. Was was there a, a temptation to you know push that uh, earlier, to, to say, hey, let's get the reunion as soon as we can? So I, if I remember correctly, that was part of the inspiration for the characters in Excalibur coming together, because the other X-Men were presumed dead. Yes. So that's what drew them together out of to honor the X-Men, etc. I can't swear to this, but I would imagine the situation was such that I was in no particular hurry to start introducing the X-Men into the Excalibur title because, as I just described to you, it would have meant every single plot, every single <laughs> page of art, every yeah. page of dialogue would have required Bob Harris's approval. And... And Bob and I are very good friends. We were very good friends then. That wasn't necessarily going to be a problem, but it would have been creating more work for me and more work for him. And we, I, both of us would have happily done that if it served the story, if it was necessary to the story or if it was going to progress the story in a way that was going to be better for the fans, for the characters, for the book. But we didn't find it necessary with Excalibur because we had plenty going on without touching on the X-Men at all. Okay. Uh, so this is this is very interesting to me because now I when I'm looking through the the issue in Inferno the Inferno tie-in where Kitty meets up with uh, the new mutants and kind of does a little debrief with them that meant that you would ha have had to go to Bob Harris and say Chris and Alan want to use the new mutants in this story even though Absolutely. I guess no it wasn't Chris that was writing new mutants at the time right it was Louis Simonson yeah I believe so. Okay. But Louise, Louise was very close uh, with Chris. They were close friends. She was writing. Bob Harris was the editor of both X-Men and New Mutants. So all of that was co-approved. Everything Louise did, in a, lot of, in, 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 in a sense, uh, Bob didn't have to be bothered with that because he knew that Louise and Chris would collaborate and make sure that those two titles tied in well together. Right. And then the fact that Chris was writing the Excalibur crossover at that point meant he knew what Louise had going on with New Mutants. We did, again, by the rules, have to run it by Bob, but Bob was it was pretty easy for Bob to approve those without too much work. It's not like he then had to call up Louise and say, all right, Chris and Terry want to do this in Excalibur. 
with this crossover with the New Mutants? How is this going to interfere with what you're doing? Because before Chris would have ever brought it to me, he would have discussed it with Louise. They would have agreed on how they were going to approach that. And then they would have discussed that with Bob and with me. Yeah, it's nice that there's that crossover between those, uh, like all the titles, all the writers all work together anyway, so, and have been for quite a while. And Louise was Chris's editor for a while, so there's, yeah, everybody yeah, she was. knew each other at that point, which is kind of cool. Yes. Uh, when Chris left, you brought on board Scott Lobdell, and this is some of his first work for Marvel yep. as well, right? Um, tell me a little bit about Scott in those early days. So Scott, uh, his actual first work was for Marvel Comics Presents. He was one of the writers that I helped sort of bring along. Okay. And I'm very proud of that because I think Scott's an excellent writer. Indeed. The way it developed was... Marvel Comics Presents was that title was being developed by Michael Higgins. And Michael Higgins left staff around the same time that Ann Nascenti left staff. So uh, I inherited Excalibur from Ann, my boss, and then I inherited Marvel Comics Presents because Tom DeFalco turned it over to me. I think he was a little crazy <laughs> turning over a title like that. It literally had 64 pages a month of new material yeah. to a, a very green editor. I think he was a little crazy doing that. I'm glad he did. Uh, and he and I had many loud conversations about it along the way. <laughs> very, very loud conversations. And Tom and I are friends. Yep. And what I always admired about Tom is we could have these loud conversations and then just be fine an hour later. And he, to Tom's credit, he was the editor-in-chief. He got to make all the final decisions about everything, but he listened. He absolutely listened, and if you had a good point, he would back off on what his position on something was. And I went to a Jesuit high school, so I knew how to argue. <laughs> That may be the the best thing they taught me in high school. So I inherited Marvel Comics Presents from Michael. He had the first few issues already in the works. Scott was someone who there was no more persistent person in trying to break into the industry than Scott Lobdell. He was showing up every day at the offices. I don't know how he got in the door, but he got <laughs> in the door every day and he showed up at every editor's office door and he had pitches for every one of their titles. And Michael had promised, Michael had taken a few of Scott's pitches and started develop, developing them with Scott and asked me very specifically when he turned the book over to me, it's like, please try to work with this guy. He's really done everything I've asked. He's done rewrites, etc. See if you can get to the point where we can print something of his. And I honored that with Michael. I worked closely with Scott. My favorite story to tell about Scott at the beginning was he used way too many words for the comic book medium. <laughs> and so what he would do, and part of the process at that time, I don't believe it's part of the comic book process now, is the writer, when they handed in their dialogue, would also hand in balloon placements for where it was going to go on specific panels. They'd take Xeroxes of the pencils and they'd indicate the balloon placements. And I would come, Scott would come in and I would have edited his script and I would say, okay, this panel here is going to have no artwork left. You all of your balloon, you're going to cover all of the artwork in this with these balloons. You can't have balloons that have nine sentences in them. <laughs> you know, you can't do this. There's not going to be any pictures left. And this medium is words and pictures. And so for what he tried to do the next time after that, and in general, what I loved about working with Scott is you rarely had to tell him something twice. 
if you corrected him on an approach he had taken in one thing, the next time he brought you a story, you would not have to you would not have to go through that again. With the exception of this too many words per panel thing. So when he came in next time with balloon placements for a story, he just drew the balloon placements really tiny, as if that was going to make it. <laughs> and I'm like, Scott, you 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 can't affect physics this way. The letters are still going to be no matter how draw small you draw the balloon placements. Now the letters aren't going to fit in those balloon placements. So there was a lot of editing at the beginning. And my approach to editing was always, whenever possible, to say to the writer, okay, you have six balloons in this panel. We need to reduce it to two. Here are the two core concepts I think you need to get across in this panel. The rest is very beautiful and flowery, and, and the wordsmithing's great. Just can't fit it here. It's not a novel. And so my approach would always be to try and get the writers to rewrite what was necessary. And then by the second or third pass, I was going to take a stab at, at, you know, redlining what could be removed or reworking certain things. Um, so I had worked a lot with Scott. All this to say, I'd worked a lot with Scott on these eight-page stories. I knew he was incredibly creative and talented. I'd seen his ability to execute really blossom. So I was happy to, to try him out on Excalibur at that point. Nice. During this period between when Chris and Alan leaves and when Alan comes back, um, you didn't have a regular pencil. Chris Wozniak kind of did a bunch of yes. issues, but there's also like Mark Badger, David Ross, Ron Wagner. Was there an issue trying to get a regular penciler in? And what is it like trying to have to schedule a new penciler for every issue or every so, other issue? That's not fun, trying to schedule a new <laughs> penciler for every issue or every other issue. Yeah, Part of the problem there was Chris Claremont was very, very overworked. So in a lot of cases, I would need a plot from him. I'm making these dates up by June 1st. I would really get them on June 22nd. And I might have had whatever penciler was working on the previous issue lined up to do this issue. But if, if it came in three weeks late, he had had to take on other work or he had already scheduled other work maybe for July. So he knew he couldn't start a 22 page issue on June 22nd. Mm. So I couldn't really get much momentum going with artists because, you know, Chris loved Excalibur, but he loved it a little less once Alan Davis was gone. Yeah. Understandably. Yeah. He loved it a little less. And the X-Men were his favored children. Yes. Uh, um, over Excalibur. So it was increasingly tough to, uh, I always wanted artists of, of stature and ability, uh, you know, and someone like Mark Badger, great work, different than most normal comic book work. I had worked with him on the Greenberg, the vampire previously. So I, I like trying out different kinds of artists on there. Uh, and Chris Wozniak was a new guy who was working on, I think, the Excalibur Prestige edition we were doing at that point. And I knew that that wasn't on the schedule yet, so I was working with him as a relatively new artist. I liked his style, and I thought it lent itself to Excalibur. So since the Prestige wasn't on the, the schedule yet, I was able to move him over and use him on Excalibur issues uh, when I could. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned these prestige uh, one-shot issues. There were a number of them during this era here. Um, and I know that Marvel did a, a series of these, but why so much focus on Excalibur? What, was it because Excalibur was really, really selling well and there was a lot of hype around it? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, those were usually assigned to me, either the sales and what the sales and marketing people in conjunction with Tom DeFalco would come and say, we want another uh, Excalibur prestige format for this quarter. Um, hmm. I would assume based on sales of previous ones in, in some case, uh, in some cases, I also think it was easier to create those than to create a, a straight up X-Men prestige format book at that point, because there was so much continuity going on between all the X books, right. you know, yeah. the Wolverine solo title, the at least two X titles going on, the new mutants, etc. that to do standalone stories like that was probably easier with Excalibur than it was with the larger X-Men family of books. Out of these, if you can remember, out of these prestige format books, which one was your favorite? Well, can you give me some choices? So okay, sorry, yeah. <laughs> uh, the first one is A Sword is Drawn, uh, Mojo Mayhem, Weird War 3, Possession, Heir Apparent. Those are kind of the ones I think that were around this time. Okay, so the first two were Chris and Alan, weren't they? Uh, Mojo Mayhem was um, Arthur Adams. Yes, okay. So those I think Anne was still the editor on. Um, and as much as I may have loved them, uh, they're not going to be my favorites because they weren't mine, right? per se. You know, I'm not, I, can't, I can't bring myself to call out a favorite. I really can't. Okay. <laughs> Um, so how about these other ones? Uh, Weird War Three, Possession, Heir Apparent. I remember them. I, I just I can't I can't call out a favorite of them. I think it would, you know, they were all great stories with great creators. Yeah. And I don't want to I don't want to <laughs> don't want to play favorites. Okay, yeah, not I want to give anyone favored nation status. Sure, sure. Uh, when Alan Davis returned, he introduced um, a bunch of new characters. Now, yep. is that something that? he has to run by you and say, hey, I'm going to introduce a bunch. We're going to like uh, expand the cast quite a bit here. Oh, of course. He had to run it by me. And yeah. I, with any new characters, would have had to run it by Mark Grunewald, who was the executive editor at that point, oh. and had a mind like a steel trap for characters so he could look at a character like Kylan or something and say, oh, this is a little too close to this character who was a member of the zodiac uh <laughs> yeah you know 14 years ago uh mark could do that or remember there might be a character with that name or looked at conflicted or had died or something and conversely mark might say oh this is an interesting character maybe you could tie it to this character who had a similar look in the zodiac 14 years ago which helped make the marvel universe even that much more cohesive Mm -hmm. So Mark prided himself on doing that. He was who we ran all new characters through. Also, the deaths of characters uh, had to get approval from him. You know, he was he was behind the Marvel handbook. So and most of what you read in the Marvel handbook, Mark could have told you off the top of his head. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Issue number 55 has a really memorable cover because there's technically no cover. The story starts on the front. Was that your idea? Uh, no, that was completely Alan's idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> completely. And Alan, you know, he was always, he'll, he'll tell you this, and he has said it, I think, in a few interviews, he was always nervous about sending me the cover sketches because I had to approve cover sketches before he went to full pencils. And he was just afraid each time he was taking it a step too far, like with the janitor and that sort of all black cover. Right. Or the giant foot behind them if i remember he was always afraid he was taking it a step too far and i do not remember a single occasion 
of telling Alan, no, I'm not interested in doing this. Because, again, my respect for Alan's talent is just <laughs> just unending. And there was – I can't imagine Alan have come, having come up with something – that I didn't think was brilliant. Leading up to the 50th issue, were you preparing to, to make that a, a very special issue? And you knew, of course, you know, 50 is a milestone and such. You give it a new logo and that kind of thing. What was what were your conversations with Davis around getting to 50? I, w- I wish I could remember specifically what those conversations were. I'm sure they were animated and fun. <laughs> yeah. Because, because Alan is the most level-headed, even-keeled guy in the world um so he didn't express excitement that clearly but i always got on a phone call with alan and they were usually three to four hours um i always got on a phone call with alan you know excited to get on the call and 10 times more excited by the time it was over because (laughs) he had pitched stuff that i couldn't have imagined in my wildest dreams yeah, his his stuff in that in that run, he just kind of dips right into like alternate realities and all the different Captain Britons and stuff. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, it totally is, but very coherent. Yep, and and tight. You know, Alan almost more than any other creator I know really is very careful about that. In fact, I wrote an X Man annual that Alan drew uh, years later. Um, and Alan, I had written the original plot and it spun out of Age of Apocalypse. And Alan had a lot of very interesting points about how, well, no, the way Age of Apocalypse ended, it's not an alternate timeline they can go back to, it just ended. So it affected how we told that story because Alan was a thinking man's artist, even if he didn't write it. Uh, I want to give you a chance to plug or promote any current projects, comics or otherwise, that you'd like to talk to talk to our listeners about. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. At the moment, I'm doing some writing and editing work for Xenoscope Entertainment. I'm editing a variety of different titles for them. And right now, I'm writing a... Uh, Wizard of Oz Heart of Magic limited series with Dorothy as the main character. They've they've used they've done Oz stories before with her. Um, that's what I'm writing now. I think the Black Knight. I wrote a Black Knight limited series for them as well, and I think the trade paperbacks coming out around now, or maybe just did. And previous to that, I had written a Musketeers. Uh, five issue limited series for them that came out as a trade paperback i also write occasional eight or ten page stories in their anthology titles uh mostly the the grim tales of terror halloween or christmas specials and i'm enjoying that work very much i'm also in the process of developing a uh another project unconnected to xenoscope or any of the other major comic book companies, and I'm not quite at liberty to talk about yet. Okay. But I'd, I'd love to talk to you about it when I can. Okay. <laughs> then we'll have to schedule another time to chat about that one then, for sure. Uh, I appreciate the time that you take to, to, to share these stories with us. It's a great, interesting period of X-Men history, this, this part of Excalibur, so I appreciate that. Oh, no problem. I love talking about it. 